0: Well, we're involved in an ongoing study of Paul's New Testament epistle, the one he wrote to the believers at Colossae. Now, you can figure out then that what we're talking about is the epistle of Paul to the Colossians. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the second chapter. The second chapter of this epistle, Colossians chapter 2. We pretty much go verse by verse Uh, as we preach through God's Word, no matter whether we're in the Old Testament or New, it's pretty much our style, is that 52 weeks out of each year the Lord gives us, we're somewhere uh, where we were the week before, probably, in God's Word, and we just take it verse by verse, because every word of Scripture is given to us from God Himself. It is God-breathed. What verses should we leave out? What verses should we neglect? Now, I'll grant you, not every verse is so full of the most profound truths, and yet every verse is the Word of God, and so we go pretty much uh, studying God's Word this way. So, this particular Lord's Day, providentially, we find ourselves at the eighth verse, Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. We'd like to have a bit of scripture reading from this chapter, and then we will uh, look at what God has for us in the text I will be reading verses 8 through 15, verses 8 through 15 in Colossians 2, and uh, let me have you follow along. If you find that the words differ just a little bit from what I read, it's because you don't have the New American Standard translation. You may be using the wonderful King James Version, it's an excellent, since 1611, It has been one of the most accurate of English translations. It's just that the English is a little old, but then some of you are too. And and you're just used to having your King James Bible. Boy, I'm just full of encouragement today, aren't I? Others of you I know use something called the New International Version. It's a worthy English. I just happen to like this New American Standard for some years now because it is such a literal rendering of the Greek In the New Testament. So allow me to read from my translation. You follow along in your own. Beginning at verse 8. Where the Apostle says to them. See to it. That no one takes you captive. Through philosophy. And empty deception. According to the tradition of men. According to the elementary principles of the world. Rather. Then according to Christ, for in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and in him you have been made complete and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead. In your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. I want to read that phrase again. Having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through That is Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the entrance of your words, the Spirit-breathed words of Scripture, bring light and renewed life to our souls. Thank you for these words we have just read, for the amazing grace it reveals to us in the person and the cross work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Feed us and thrill us again as we contemplate how precious and complete is our great salvation. We ask in the Savior's victorious name. Amen. Peter Kreeft is a renowned professor at Boston College and a prolific writer. In one of his fine works, he tells the story of a poor European family who a generation ago had saved for a number of years, as so many did, to buy tickets to come to America. And once at sea, they carefully rationed the Cheese and bread that they had brought for the journey, after about three days, the boy in the family complained to his father, I hate cheese sandwiches. If I don't eat anything else before we get to America, I'm going to die. And giving the boy, Chris says, his last nickel the father says go to the ship's galley and buy an ice cream cone when the boy returned and it was a long time later we are told with a wide smile on his face his worried dad asks where were you in the galley eating three ice cream cones and a steak dinner. All that for a nickel? Oh no, said the lad. The food is free. The boy replied. It comes with the ticket. Now, Professor Creep's little story, I think, serves as an apt illustration for Paul's Expressed concern for the church at Colossae. On their Christian journey, he wants them to know. Listen very carefully. He wants them to know that everything they need for this life and for the life to come, comes with faith in Christ. And Paul will say, as we've read, if someone comes along and tells you that you need something more than Christ, you're being offered a moldy cheese sandwich. When all along, the nourishment, the provision, the choicest delights have been all included in the all-sufficient person of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has paid it all, purchased Our ticket for us. And in him, everything is included. Notice Paul's warning about the false teachers who were disturbing and actually corrupting the childlike faith of these true believers. Verse 8, he says, see to it. He sounds like a spiritual parent, doesn't he? The King James Version uses the word, beware. Today, we would say, look out, look out for those nasty Gnostics. We talked a little bit about them at the beginning of our study. It's hard to define exactly what first century Gnosticism uh, was really all about. It's very hard to do that in a few words, and I don't want to dwell on it today. But the reason it's so hard to define is because... Gnosticism of 1st century uh, Colossae and in other cities where the gospel was being preached is and was a real hodgepodge of both mental, philosophical, and even emotional junk. And the purpose of the Gnostic teachers was always the same. They would always want to muddy the waters... Of a pure gospel. Ultimately, to distort the gospel into something toxic for the souls of men. That's why Paul says elsewhere, look, anybody wants to tinker with the gospel. You know what he says to them? In, In polite Greek language, may such a person go to hell. Anybody messes with the gospel and fails to repent under that gospel message, he said more politely, let them be anathema. Let them be cursed by God. It is a terrible thing to add to, take away, or in any way distort the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul wants to underscore that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is all about those who believe it as being complete in Christ. And I want to tell you, Satan's tactics haven't changed all that much in 2,000 years. Let's note that the apostle warns against at least four streams of thought and practice that must be avoided by Christians. And I do believe that These have their counterpart. We may not call it Gnosticism per se today, but they have their counterpart today. He says, see to it. Let's take this apart a little bit. We're doing a Bible study here. See to it. Number one, he says, no one takes you captive through philosophy. And what kind of philosophy is he referring to here? Well... It's anyone who comes along with a view and espouses a view about the purpose and the meaning of life. Human philosophy always does the same thing when it talks about a view of life. It always places man instead of God at the center of one's personal universe. Today, it's easily described as that attitude we so often encounter in our day-to-day interactions. People who think it's all about them. When Paul says, no, it's all about Christ. Let no one take you captive through philosophy. Number two, he says, see to it that no one comes to you with what he calls empty deception. And I had to spend some time thinking about and researching a little bit. What did he mean by those two words? And what's its counterpart today? An empty deception. Uh, This was the best I could come up with. I think it hits the nail. These are the lies that we like to hear. Empty deception. These, they're vain. The real word there for empty is vain, or the English word, the old King James. These are lies that people like to hear, that we like to hear. In fact, these involve the lies that we will tell ourselves in order to excuse anything that otherwise might be called sin. The heart is deceitful. And because it is, it is also desperately wicked. Don't be taken over by empty, vain, self-centered deception, listening to lies that tickle the ears because it's really what you want to hear. There are many such today who even gather those kinds of preachers around themselves. They don't want to hear anything other than what tickles their fancy and ministers to their need to continue in their sinful ways empty deception thirdly don't be taken in don't let the waters get muddied through what is called the tradition of men the tradition of men well this is the hallmark isn't it of all man-made religions ideas and practices which get engraved over time and after a while become habit, where such practices assume a kind of authority over a person that God has never ordained. I'll preach more on this next Lord's Day with a message entitled, Worthless Religion. <laughs> the traditions of men. There may be all kinds of religious trappings, but they only lead to spiritual bondage and bind the practitioner to the real freedom, Paul says, which is to be found again only in Christ. Don't let anyone take you captive through philosophy, empty deception, uh, deception or the traditions of men. Now, fourthly, This was a little bit more difficult phrase to research. The elementary principles of the world. You see that there. Uh, This problem is named a second time in this chapter, uh, in verse 20. And so we have to ask the question, as good Bible students, what are these, quote, elementary principles of the world? Well, I found that scholars have variant views on this, but having done some investigation, I believe it's likely... That the Apostle is warning against the problem or the pitfall of ritualism. Especially as it relates to Old Testament forms of worship. This is why he mentions circumcision in our scripture reading. That was a ritual of the Old Testament. And he alludes to spiritual baptism, which is a ritual ritual when practiced as water baptism by even the true church today. But there's a pitfall here. And he wants them to avoid the pitfall where even early Christian practices like baptism and the Lord's Supper. For example, if someone says, when asked whether or not they had the assurance of true salvation, whether or not someday they really will stand before God and inherit a place in eternity. And you might hear someone say, who is given to these elementary principles of things in the world, they might say, well, I was baptized. I was baptized as a child on my mother's knee. And I continued in all the practices, the rituals of my particular faith. Someone might even say, I was baptized when I was 14. Someone may go out of this place this morning and say, I took communion today. And so therefore, oh, we'd never say it, but the attitude of heart can be, this is how I win the favor of God. Ritual. The pitfall is to begin to think that even those commanded rituals become the main thing instead of an elementary principle. Somehow thinking that the religious event or the bread and wine have in them some intrinsic value in and of themselves apart from Christ. That's ritualism. That's giving way to what he calls the elementary principles of the world. The Gnostics were all about teaching people to do things this way and that, and to do it faithfully as ritual, believing this was a way to earn the favor of God. And so even legitimate ordinances we have to look out for, because they are elementary. They are meant only to lead us on to the actual substance, which is Christ himself. Yes, Jesus broke bread and held it forth to his disciples and said, this is my body. We fall into the pitfall of the elementary principles of the world if we try to say that what he was saying is the bread in and of itself is actually his flesh or body. Of course, he was teaching a Sunday school lesson, as it were. I want you to see the object lesson today. This bread is my body broken for you. They surely did not think for a moment that the bread which had been baked in the brick oven that morning was somehow magically transferred into actual flesh. Yet, there are those that hold such views, even among the most mainline of Christian denominations today. Remember, we read this larger portion of Scripture in the previous verses where Paul says, the elementary principle of Old Testament circumcision. Now, that was a ritual. But here he is teaching that that has now been fulfilled and is not even any longer necessary by a New Testament spiritual baptism into Christ. He likens Old Testament circumcision as an object lesson that pointed forward to our being in Christ. Just as circumcision in the Old Testament ritual was an outward sign of being set apart unto Jehovah, so are being united to Christ. By the way, the mention of baptism here has nothing to do with water baptism. He's taught using the word as it really is meant to be used in its greater significance. The elementary part is the water baptism. The graduate degree in theology comes when a person realizes... That when they went down under the waters and rose up again, they were giving an object lesson, an outward sign of an inward reality. Paul says, don't ever allow your outward practices, no matter how religious they may be, and even if they're commanded by God, like baptism and the Lord's Supper, to become the main thing. They are only the elementary thing. They are to point to Christ alone, who is the source of every believer being made complete. Now, that was a little weighty. That was quite a lesson for you to endure. But I hope you've uh, been able to get some of that and that'll help you. We're going to move further into chapter 2 next week. We'll see more clearly why religion and ritual and people are given to it. Their whole lives, religion and ritual, apart from Christ, is a worthless pursuit. One that denies the all-sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross and his personal presence in us by his Holy Spirit. Now, the Apostle's answer to man-centered philosophy, to empty deception, his answer to the traditions of men, his answer to the elementary rituals of religion are all swept aside in the grand confession we find right here in chapter 2 at verses 9 and 10. I want you to look at that. 9 and 10. Read it again. For in Him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You want a relationship to God, creator of the universe... You need to come by way of the one in whom all of God actually dwells and does so in a way we can acknowledge in bodily form. And in him, he says in verse 10, you have been made complete and he is the head over all rule and authority. Let me give you just in a summary form, Paul's proven thesis, the argument that he's making in three simple statements. Simple but profound truth at the same time. Here's what he's teaching them. And they need to hear it because they're being led astray. And so here's what he gives them. Three points. He's a good preacher. Three points. One. All that God is, is found in Christ, the God-man. All of the New Testament argues that. I'll state it again. You want to know God? You must have a personal relationship to Jesus Christ. All that God is, the fullness of deity, dwells in bodily form. All that God is, is found in Christ, the God-man. Number two, Paul would say, all that you possess... In possessing Christ is everything you need. Again, the theme, I believe, of the whole epistle, which we've entitled the whole study, The Complete Christian. All that you possess in possessing Christ is everything you need. It really is all about Jesus and only Jesus. Jesus first, (laughs) but Jesus alone, all and all. Number three, where he says he's the head over all rule and authority, he's saying that Christ, as Lord, is the first, last, and final authority about everything, including you. Let me restate that. Christ, as Lord is the first, last, and final authority about everything, but especially including you. In other words, whether we're submitting to authority or not is one thing, but it will never change the fact that all are under authority. And that there is coming a day where basically every man, woman, boy, and girl will give an account. Isn't that what the scripture says? Concerning their stewardship of what it meant that Christ is God in bodily form and is the head over all rule and authority, all creation, someday will ultimately bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of your life today, whether or not you're obeying him. That's why if you are walking in disobedience, he will most assuredly bring you to accountability. But oh, look at the positive of it all. All that God is, is found in Christ the God-man. All that you possess, and possess in possessing Christ is everything you need. Christ as Lord is the first, last, and final authority about everything, including you. You're not alone. You have a God in Christ who's ruling over every detail of your life, including right now, since you've stepped out of the shower or whatever including every number of hairs upon your head or lack of hairs upon your head, as may be the case. To we who believe Christ is real, I had a young man come in off the street this week reading our church sign, the truth that's put there, and he read it over a period of about a week going through a deep valley of personal crisis. Came in, a broken young man sat before me. And what joy and privilege I had to say to someone as messed up, as messed up as the story I was hearing. And I was saying, you know, James, Christ is real. He is truly alive. And right now, he's in this room with the two of us. And he has something he wants you to know. And with my open Bible, I was able to share with James. You pray for James. I don't know his last name. I know he went out of here with a truckload of problems. But he also went out of here having heard that Christ is all he really needs. And I pleaded with him to plead with God to make Christ known to his own heart. The answer once again and always is found in what he has done, not what you and I can do. Look at verse 13 again. (laughs) How much can a dead man do? Except stink the place up. When you were dead in your transgressions and the spiritual uncircumcision of your flesh, he He made you alive together with him. How did he do this? Having forgiven us all our transgressions. Or let me ask the questions to you. Let's have a Bible quiz. This is catechism time, class. I think you'll all do fairly well. But the questions are so important they need to be asked. And they need to be asked time and again. So I'll start and you respond quietly in your own heart. Who was it that created you out of Adam? And your answer ought to be God, the author of life, God, the creator. I'm here today. I live and move and breathe, and I have my being in God because he created man. And then I ask the question that comes having, I trust, answered the first question correctly. Let me ask you personally, did you, like your first father, sin against God? Any sinners here today? Anybody want to admit other than the Ashleys? Yep, there's a few other sinners. We know the Ashleys are sinners, but yeah. Did you, like your first father, sin against God? Yes. Yes. And if you say no, you make God a liar. Isn't that what the Bible says? Let no one say, I'm without sin. You make God a liar. That can't be. For all have sinned. All have fallen short. And then the question follows. Well, what were the results of your sin? Or put it this way. What were the wages of your sin? For the wages of sin is what, folks? It is death. Spiritual death. You're part of this text that says you were dead in trespasses and sin. And again, according to the scriptures, I ask the question, What did God do through Christ with your spiritual corpse? What did God do through Christ with your spiritual corpse? Well, according to verse 13, it's pretty direct, isn't it? He made you alive. That's why we have it recorded in the New Testament. Works of resurrection. Jesus raising the dead like Lazarus. In order to illustrate... That he is the same one who brings spiritual life out of a spiritual corpse. He made you alive. One more question and we'll move on. What did making you alive and bringing you into a relationship with him require? How could this be possible? The wages of sin is death and yet he made you alive? Well... Staying with our text, we answer directly out of verse 13, toward the end there. Having forgiven us all our transgressions. If the wages of sin is death, and sin gets dealt with some other way than by our death, then it must be that Christ has dealt with our sins. And He has. Having forgiven us All our transgressions. I wonder if you can say Amen. I wonder if you can say Hallelujah. Or are you all still spiritually? Wouldn't be the case. Now, this far along in our study, a few of you may have wondered about my sermon title this morning. Most of you may not have noticed there is a title, but there always is. The title: A Cancelled Certificate of Debt. And if that's too fancy, think of what we used to say in the old days when we had to borrow a little money to get by on till payday, and someone gave us what we were willing to call an IOU. There's an IOU that exists, a certificate of debt, and it gets torn up. How? title is meant to shine a bright spotlight on the glory found here in verse 14. And for the remainder of our time, just a few minutes, I want to dwell at verse 14. I want you looking at it with me. A very literal English rendering of the Greek text found in this New American Standard translation I read is this. Please take note of the picture language because it paints a portrait of Calvary, the old rugged cross that we sang about this morning. Verse 14, Having canceled out the IOU, the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. Oh, you bet, it was causing our death. He, Christ, has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. For those of you who revere the good work, again, of the King James translators, it reads this way. I like the language. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Can't get away from the cross. The portrait of Calvary here the nails by which he hung there. One more, a worthy paraphrase this time of the same scripture called the New Living Translation puts it quite beautifully this way, and I quote, He, Christ, canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. I'm so glad that none of the English translators thought that it might be good to take out the phrase, nailing it to the cross. They left it in. They used other words. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. I want you to have that image in your heart and in your soul today. This is the gospel. Most of you, I hope by now, are quite familiar with the biblical teaching that says, Christ died for our sins on the cross. Fewer, but still a good number of professing Christians may know their Bibles well enough to understand that our very sins that would have condemned us were themselves condemned in the very body and blood of Christ. The scriptures say, and I quote, He, Christ, who knew no sin, the perfect man, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God through Him. So the cross of Christ, among other things that it means, means this. Our sin itself, by Christ becoming sin for us, gets killed off. And therefore, its wages cannot be paid. Life, not death. Because, as one of the great Puritans put it, there is in the cross of Christ the death of death in the death of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? The death of death in the death of Christ. That's the mystery of this verse 14. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That's the apostle Peter's words. But there's more than that that happened. That happened that day on the cross. Can you say could there be anything more? Yes. There's more that happened that day on the cross. Colossians 2:14 also says that the decrees of God His thou shalt's and thou shalt not's, that is, the law of God, listen, was also nailed to the cross that day. Now, by this, the apostle means that the law, which, of course, is eternal and thus still stands today, But in Christ is a law that cannot bring condemnation anymore to we who are redeemed by that cross, by that Christ, because the God-man hung on that cross has fulfilled all the law's demands. Remember how Christ said that He had not come to destroy the law, but that the law through Him might be fulfilled. A way to interpret it upon this Calvary scene is to say that the law through Him for us might be fulfilled. This is why the Bible clearly states that no one could ever be made right with God by keeping the rules, the law of God. There may be someone here in this small audience this morning, that still has this entrenched idea that your hope of heaven is somehow hanging on thoughts that you might be good enough in and of yourself to get there. Impossible. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified, thus saith the Lord through Paul. Salvation by the works of the law. Listen, if it were possible, it would mean that someone would have to be as perfect as Christ. Now, you may have done many wonderful good deeds in your lifetime or this very week. You may be, in your own estimation, a good person. But I dare say you are not as perfect as Christ. I'm sorry. For he was perfect in every thought, in every motive, in every action, and in every deed. All that he ever did pleased the holy God and kept his law perfectly. The law of God, by the way, still stands today. It is still the basis for God's judging sin. And all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God, which is seen in the law. And so I tell you today, because I'm your friend, and because I love you, and because God loves you more, He tells me to tell you this. The only escape from the law's demands and its subsequent condemnation is if you have someone, a perfect someone. Take the decrees, take the law of God that was against us because of our sins, take the law. As well as your sins. And I like the language of here in Colossians. And nail it for you. I need someone to do this for me. You need someone to do this for you. Listen very carefully again. to Today's wondrous text. He made you alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our transgressions. Because we deserved it? No. Because of his grace. Having canceled out the certificate of debt, where would that come from? Well, it consisted of decrees, the law of God which was against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way. Both our sin and the law that would have judged us, and He nailed it to the cross. You see, as we sometimes say with a hint of cleverness, But the truth is glorious. We owed a debt we could not pay. We're already, even in this bad economy, if you're paying all your bills, God bless you. Some can't. But I can tell you this. We're all spiritually already bankrupt. We owed a debt we could not pay. So Christ, He paid a debt He did not owe. This may be the best week I'll have all year to say that what God did at the cross did not require 700 billion dollars. But the effect is, He bailed you out. He bailed you out. And He nailed it. Back in 1776, a date significant to us Americans, the English theologian, Augustus Toplady, a man also incredibly gifted at writing beautiful verse, gave to the church these immortal words. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could I try harder, try harder, try harder, and always had strength to try harder more? Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow? Some people think they're saved by their tears. Some people think they get God's mercy because they're sorry. I tell you again, there is no such teaching in the Word of God for it is by the blood of Christ not tears and top lady knew this he summed it up by saying oh for sin could not atone thou must save and thou alone nothing in my hand i bring simply to thy cross i cling naked came to thee for dress helpless look to thee for grace Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, lest I die. I know I'm racing against the clock. I trust you'll all be able to stay till we break the bread and take the cup. But God forbid we would do something related to the elementary principles of this world, a ritual. And not understand that the substance is Christ. And that what you need is him bailing you out before God by his work on the cross. I don't know whatever else you've heard in the course of your whole lifetime. But God saw to it that you were here this morning. And it was to hear me say again, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Believe. Believe. Trust in the Christ of Calvary. He is all that you need, but you desperately need.